It doesn't take missing gathering together too many times before we miss gathering together. And so it's good to see you here this morning. I, I really, I'm, I'm surprised how many people we have this morning. So thankful for our maintenance crew and the work they've done to try to get things ready. We still had some slick spots, but we had folks in the parking lot hopefully helping you navigate some of that so you were able to, to get in safely. So we're, we're glad that you're here. And those who are joining by live stream today, we're also glad you're joining us. And know that that number's probably a little bit up today as well. We believe at Lawndale that the Bible gives us answers to all of life's questions. And all the big questions as well. The little questions, but the big questions. What we need to know about God and life, and even life after death, the Bible tells us. And so in these first couple of chapters of Genesis, we get very clearly how we got here. That's an important question to ask. Because if we can begin to understand how we got here, then we understand that that is also who we give an account to. Our creator will ultimately be our judge. As we move into chapter 2, though, we see a shift. And it's not only how we got here, but it's why we are here. Why did God put us here on earth? It's an interesting question. It's one that all of us need to ask. It's one that we need to help others to ask because without it, we really don't have purpose. We don't have meaning. Why are we here? I hope you have your Bibles this morning, and if you do, I hope you're already looking with me in Genesis chapter 2. And so we're going to do something I think that is really important this morning. We're going to read through this whole chapter. Now that may sound daunting, but I believe we can do it. So let's stand together and just follow along as I read Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was a watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. One of the attacks against the Bible is that it contradicts itself. You read one thing in one place and you read another and it's, there are apparent contradictions. And so people attack the Bible and say it's, it's these inconsistencies that keep me from believing the Bible. Now we believe the Bible's inerrant. We believe it's completely true. And when it's read in its context and all the information is in, that the Bible is what will be proven true. The problem is with us and our understanding, not in the Bible and God's inspiration of it. When something looks or sounds like an apparent contradiction, know that there's always an answer. Some really smart people have considered all of these cases in Scripture that would seem to be apparent contradictions, like chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis. There are two accounts of creation here. They're, they're not contradictory. What we find upon closer study is that they're complementary, like the four Gospels. They're not contradictory, they're just complementary. And with study, we find that uh, they fit perfectly together. So, again, one of these men that I think is a very smart man, Gleason Archer, he had a Ph.D. from Harvard, brilliant linguist, professor of Old Testament. He said this, and I think it reflects back on Genesis 1 and 2, be fully persuaded in your own mind that an adequate explanation exists even though you've not yet found it. We may have complete confidence that the divine author preserved the human author of each book of the Bible from error or mistake as he wrote down the original manuscripts of the sacred text. I say this because many of our students and college students will have professors who point out things and say, how can the Bible be true? You see this and this over here? And I want you to know there's always an answer. Again, the, the problem is on our side. I had an Old Testament professor who was a very liberal teacher, and he came into our class and he had a list of errors that he had found in the Bible. And I remember opening up Gleason Archer's book, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, and just going through and just being refreshed and renewed in my belief that the Word of God is true, that it is inerrant, it's all inspired by God. And there are those who will attack Scripture. And again, I, I just want to affirm for you, when some of that happens and people point things out, uh, oftentimes they'll say that statement, well, the Bible's full of errors or it has contradictions. Well, usually they can't point out any of them. But when they do, they're apparent. And when all the information, the context is put in place, we begin to understand better. So what I would say to you about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're two accounts, but they're not two different accounts. They, they come at it from two different angles. So Genesis 1 
is Adam and Eve seen as the culmination of creation? Days one through six. God, be, God creates the heavens and the earth, and we see that progression leading up to the apex of his creation, Adam and Eve. So they are the culmination in a chronological narrative of how God created the world. Now, in Genesis 2, we see that it's a focus on day 6. It's not a chronological ordering. Now, it's not out of order, but it's the focus on day 6. Genesis 1 is a building up to man. Genesis 2 is a building out from man. One person said that this is a little bit like looking at a map. Now, some of you don't really know what a hard copy map is. But some of us used to travel and we would have to unfold those maps. We could never get them folded back right. But we would unfold those maps and it would be a broad picture. If I wanted to go to California, it would tell me how to get from North Carolina to California in one big map. But now on the bottom or on the back, there were some insets of some particular cities that would give you a lot more detail. And so Genesis 1, we have the broad map. Genesis 2, we have an inset where God's saying, let me tell you more about day 6 and what was happening with the creation of man. So chapter 2, Adam and Eve are the centerpiece of creation. So why are we here on earth? As this day 6 is built out and we're getting more detail, we begin to see that, number 1, we're here on earth for a relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, you've missed your purpose. That's why God puts you here on earth. You're here to know Him and to enjoy Him and to glorify Him. His design in creation is very evident. When you begin to look in these first few verses of chapter 2, we get the Sabbath. We get that day of rest. This is not a continuation of the creation story. It's really a celebration of the Creator now. And in part, God, God didn't rest because he was tired. Man, he had to be tuckered out because of all that work on these six days. Well, God does not grow weary. He is always full of energy and power. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. But that word rest for us means he ceased from activity. He stopped his creating. And it was a time of reflection and rejoicing. And when we gather now on the Lord's Day, we use it, it's a time of reflection. It's a time of worship. It's in some ways the way the creator reminds the man of what this relationship looks like. The creator, creator reveals what a reminder to the man looks like. And that's a, that's a day that we set aside to worship. It's a day we set aside to reflect. It's a day we set aside to enjoy God even more. Now, every day we should be worshiping God. Every day we should be enjoying Him. But can you see the value of one day set aside to springboard again, to start over again, to bring me back to my senses after I've been in the world all week? I mean, what beautiful design God has that He would set aside a day. And even in the New Testament, He says, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves. Now, I, I know the snow may preclude many from being here today and the ice, and I know some sickness precludes people, and I, I, I'm not 
saying that, but when we have opportunity and we have freedom to do so, God intends for us to gather together with his people as a reminder. And it's a refreshment. It's a revival. It's a renewal. It's now I remember why I'm here on earth and I want to think and celebrate more my creator. But the creator also reveals what a relationship to the man looks like. In other words, he begins to show how he cares for the man. Uh, When you read in verses 4 and following, you begin to see what all God did in making the man. He provided for him. Now, even these bushes, the small plants, some will say that what God did in chapter 1 earlier before he created the man was more of a general creating of all uh, all the plants and the trees and all the vegetation and in day two, it's more of a focus on the Garden of Eden. God, God then put plants that the man would cultivate. Not, not just the wild bushes and all the other stuff, but the ones he would cultivate for food and enjoy the work that God had given him. So it's not a contradiction. It's, it's complementary to what we see in chapter 1. And so God is saying, I'll provide for you. I'll be, in some ways, like a father. And we get that even more clearly in the New Testament. God is a provider. He takes care of the man. And and we see that God has purpose for the man. God breathed in him the breath of life. God gave him a soul. Unlike any other creature that God had made, God gave man a soul. And the soul that we have is... The ability now to know God and to experience God and to grow in relationship with God. We not only reflect God like all of creation, but now we get to enjoy God. We get to experience God. We, we get to walk with God. We, we are people who are bodies with the soul. There's one whole person but we're bodies with the soul. And one day this body is going to pass away, this body of dust. It's going to return to dust. But what's eternal is that soul, and it will live eternally with God, or it will die eternally in hell. God made us eternal uh, beings as far as from creation to live on into eternity future. So God reveals what a relationship to a man looks like. Each person In the image of God, each soul, every person that's conceived is a soul. God God puts a soul in every person that's conceived. It brings even more grieving to what we observed yesterday, didn't it? To know that 49 years ago, yesterday, Roe versus Wade became law, was passed by the Supreme Court, made legal, And since then, almost 65 million souls, babies, pre-born babies, have been aborted. It's a grievous church. As we pray and as we look, we're hopeful, we're prayerful that this might be the year that that's overturned. What a wonderful thing to be a part of that. What an awful thing to be a part of what we've seen and experienced in our nation over these 49 years But a wonderful thing we could see if that were overturned. Church, pray. Church, continue to be diligent in these pro-life efforts. That's God's design. But notice, 
our dominion here. In verse 15, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, again, more details here. We see God made man in chapter 1 in God's image, male and female, but we don't see the whole process that God went to. And now God's kind of opening it up and saying, let me show you how I did all of this. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So the man is to represent God. That's part of his dominion. He represents God on earth. But he's been giving these assignments. Work it and keep it. Work is not a sinful thing. It's not a result of the fall. It's a good thing. It's how God meant for us to live. Being diligent in our work. Some work at home. Some work outside the home. Our work, though, is diligent, and it's representing God and what he's called us to do and the assignments that he's been given us, that he's given us. And then the freedom that God, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What great freedom God has given us to live for him, to know him, to do what he put us here on earth to do. But then do you see the parameter, what the man is not to do, and that's to disobey God, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a test of their obedience. God made this human soul and he gave him free will. We make choices in the world. You, you make choices in the world. Now, you cannot choose to become a follower of Christ unless God is drawing you to himself. But there's free will. For, for the first man and the first woman, they, they were given some parameters and it was a test of whether or not they were going to obey God, whether or not they were going to do what they were put here on earth to do, to know God, to enjoy God or, and walk with Him, or were they going to rebel and say no, that they know what's better and eat of this tree that God had forbidden them to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, when they disobey God, if, if they disobey God, and we know the next chapter, when they disobey God, there's consequences. There's death. It's a, it's a physical death that begins to occur on earth. From this moment, Adam began to die. It's a spiritual death because of what it did to his relationship with God and what sin does as it breaks fellowship with God. And we begin, when we get to chapter 3, we begin to see how impossible it is even to know God because of sin on our own. But I want you to see here, the man is not to disobey God. And whenever we look to anything besides God for answers and satisfaction, we're always going to be disappointed and there's always going to be bad consequences. Always find your satisfaction in God, in a relationship with Him. Uh, again, our statement that we like to make, uh, John Piper, uh, I think, is the one who, who first said it. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. And you'll never find your satisfaction in the things of the world, even in the people of the world. Our ultimate satisfaction must come from God and knowing Him. And as long as we're right with Him then even when things are not right on earth, we can have peace, we can have joy, we can have purpose, we can have meaning. 
Now, what our dominion doesn't do, our dominion doesn't diminish his sovereignty. God gave man responsibility. Our dominion, our work, what God put us here on earth to do doesn't diminish his sovereignty. But what it does, it emphasizes our responsibility. We're responsible for our actions. We're responsible. We cannot blame, well, you know, I was raised in a certain kind of way or I didn't grow up this way or nobody ever told me this or whatever excuses we want to try to make. Well, I was hurt or I was offended or this person did this or that. We're all responsible. None of us are able to say it's that person's fault. It all comes back to our own responsibility. God gave us assignments. God gave us responsibility. He, he made us to have dominion over the earth. And again, that doesn't diminish his sovereignty. Sometimes we think we're in charge of all things. And that's, that's laughable. God will always have his way. What we do cannot keep the ultimate end from occurring that God has designed and that God has ordered. God will get glory and his plans will be carried out. Our best thoughts apart from God are just folly and foolishness. You were made for a relationship with him. I think about sometimes what small kids say and, and think... I wonder how God must hear some of the things that I say at different times. I I remember my daughter when she was a a preschooler sitting on her grandfather's lap and she looked up at him and said, Papa, your eyebrows are growing out of your nose. (laughs) You know, what what a perspective from a child, right? And I think sometimes... We're looking at things and how, how silly we are to ever think we're in charge, we're in control, that we're the ones who are making things that God does. God is sovereign. He's in control. And so the responsibility he's given doesn't diminish at all his, his sovereignty. So we're made for a relationship. That's why you're here on earth. If you don't know God and you don't have a relationship with him, and you feel purposeless and meaningless, that's why. You, you were made for a relationship with him, but you're also made for a relationship with others. It's interesting as you look at the end of this chapter, in chapter 2, what God said about the man. It's not good that the man should be alone. Verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. What's not good is that people would live alone or in isolation. Think about Adam's creation. When God created Adam, it was good. He, he was good. What was not good was that he was alone and God made him alone so that he could recognize the very sovereignty of God and the provisions of God. The woman would be a gift for him. And so God made him to live in community, made him to live with the wife and have a family and to be a part of the people of God. Some are called to singleness. Some get married and God doesn't bless them with children. I, I get all of that, but the great majority are, are created to be married, have kids. And 
All of us, though, are made for community and to be a part of the people of God. And you see that in the very fact of Adam's creation. Adam was able to come to that conclusion himself. So on day six, God brought all these animals to him that he was the name. Quite a process. and I mean, I, I, I chuckle sometimes when I think about him. Here's a man with a perfect mind, unlike any of us. At that point, he, uh, was, sin had not distorted it. So I'm, I'm thinking, he's a pretty smart guy, and he's just running through this. Giraffe, elephant, hippopotamus. I mean, he's just going through the whole deal. And some of those names in my mind, I think, that's a little bit ridiculous, right? I mean, how did he come up with that? But he's coming to the conclusion that he's not seeing anyone really like him. He's experiencing what God wanted him to experience, that there's a provision there still for him. God showed him his design was to live for him and with God's people, and it wasn't just the animals. And I I would caution, some of you have great pets, right? But at the same time, don't let your pets replace human fellowship, right? Right? There's, there's a word there too. God meant for us to be in human fellowship. And so make sure that, that you're, you're pushing yourself out even in some uncomfortable places to relate to people. So what is good though? That they're together. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So what is good is that God made the woman. We talked about gender in chapter 1. So that's God's design. That's his order. That's his natural order. That's the biblical order. One man, one woman. That's the definition of marriage for us. And he brought this woman to the man. Whenever we go contrary to the design and the plan of God, again, there are consequences, right? And so it's important that we not reject God's design, but accept God's design. Even in Romans chapter 1, I, I, this, let me read part of this to you. Romans chapter 1, it, it connects so well to the creation story that I think it's important that we read part of this. Let's, uh, let's look in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So you see the rejection of a creator and how that people, even though they might seem intelligent and could have all kind of degrees at the end of their name, they've become foolish Because they have rejected God. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, themselves, people, rather than the Creator, 
who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's there, isn't it? I'm not coming up with any new ideas. There are a lot of new ideas that are out there. But the idea of one man, one woman for marriage is not a new idea. It's from the beginning. And then as we move into the New Testament, God affirms, this is the way I I meant for it to be. So whatever desires and feelings and temptations a person may have that are outside of the will of God... Those feelings and desires should never replace the commands and the design of God. And so here this man is receiving his wife. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Verse 24, therefore a man will leave his father and his mother. You see priority in the marriage and hold fast to his wife and they they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed There was no sin, no no exploitation, no selfishness, no shame because they were right with God and they were right with each other. What I would say to you is our love for each other doesn't diminish His glory. If we're loving each other like God's called us to, that doesn't take away from our love for God. It doesn't diminish His glory. It emphasizes our opportunity. We reflect his image by loving others. God loves us. We should love others. And and it it starts in our very homes as husbands and wives love each other and they they make disciples and raise their kids as they love them and, and it spreads out. That's the design of God. That's what God meant for us. Sometimes we tell couples who are planning on getting married, it's not really love that brings you to this place. It's not love that brings you to the marriage altar. It's love you commit to at the marriage altar because now you're really going to learn how to love another person. And God uses marriage to shape us and to teach us and and let that love spread out. You can learn to love the person you're with 24-7, then surely you can love the other people around you, right? Are you living like you know why you're here on earth? Jesus was approached and he said, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second one. It's like it. That's what we're getting in Genesis chapter 2, this love relationship with God, this this fatherhood that he has, and the fact that we're created by him to know him and enjoy him. It's it's first and foremost, and, and then secondly, we love our neighbors, starting with our spouses and our kids, and spreading it out among our extended family and our church family. It's why we're here, to love him and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's a big job, and you can't do it yourself. And that's why Jesus came, to rescue us from ourselves. Because left to ourselves, we'd love ourselves. We'd be selfish. We would do all we could to destroy ourselves, even though we thought we were doing what was good. 
God said, I've got a better way. Jesus came to show us and to bring us back to this original, this better way that God had for us. And this morning, we'd love to talk further with you about that. Have you surrendered your life to God? Have you come to Christ and accepted the work he did for you for the forgiveness of your sins on the cross and the resurrection? We'll have pastors available. I'll be in guest center after the service. Love to talk with you. Are there people that you're struggling with in your life right now that you're not loving well? You're put here on earth to love God and to love your neighbor, to love the people that are around you. Are you doing what God puts you here on earth to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that brings us back to reality. With all the smoke and the mirrors, the deceptions that this world and the enemy puts out in front of us, with the selfishness that we ourselves have in living in the flesh. Thank you for the mirror that is before us of your word that we can look at and see who we really are and who you really are. And I pray this morning that you would let us do business, take care of our relationship with you. I pray that this morning you would draw people to you that they could do and be what you put them here on earth to do and to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.